Hello and welcome to Something Inventive. On this episode, we'll be talking about online security and we have special guest, Seb Kinnaird. Um, You might recognise the name there. Seb is actually my brother and he'll be helping me walk through the wild world of security. Hello, Seb. Hello. I'm glad to have you on, finally. It's been about uh, three years since we started. <laughs> it's been a while. It has. This episode is also sponsored by Inventive People, where you can hire the right person for your next creative project. More about that later. So, Seb, well, I know a lot about you being your brother, um, but perhaps you'd like to tell everyone a little bit about your history. So I've been in IT for nearly 20 years, and since 2005, that's been dedicated to work in, in security. So I started off with what they call network security. So that's firewalls, web proxies, how we control traffic into and out of an organization. Essentially, so ever since then, it's been helping organizations, large and small, including some public sector organizations to help protect them from hackers. In many ways, help them get more organized. There's a lot of companies and organizations that try to be more secure, but they'll focus on buying the latest bits of kit, nice flashy lights, quite expensive. But if they skimp on the basics, then they will quite likely still potentially be in the news. So it's always key to focus on the basics, make sure you know what your assets are, making sure you know that you've got basic logging in place, that you're scanning for vulnerabilities, make sure that they can't be exploited, make sure you've got basic endpoint, so protection, so antivirus, exploit, but you know, key. If you don't know what your assets are, you don't know what's in your environment then you don't know what you need to protect yeah and and do you think it's getting more complicated over the time since when you first started in it all those years ago and moving forward that security complexities have grown at all definitely although it is in the past few years obviously because various hacks and corporate breaches have made the public news there is a lot more investment a large number of companies have a lot of legacy environments for one or another reason it's especially whether a large bank to the the systems in place to help do your bank transfers. What you consider your day-to-day tasks that you'd expect from a bank often run on some very old systems. Yeah. And they're, they're, they're left old because no one wants to touch them because they don't want things to break. And then if, people, if things break, people can't withdraw their money, et cetera, et cetera. I know. Wasn't there a, um, a bank recently, was it Halifax or Barclays, where they tried to overhaul their network and everyone... It's, it stopped access for everyone and they, they Lloyd, had a, a... TSB. So the, ah, right, yeah. the Lloyd's and TSB demerged essentially. So TSB was acquired by a Spanish company and they tried to modernize uh, IT infrastructure maybe a little bit too quickly. And then, yeah, that broke things for quite a while. And that caused a lot of noise in the press due to IT. Yeah, so it's it's not easy even for the, the big companies. No, the problem with a lot of things, you will only find out certain things once you do that change because of the problems that with things like this no one wants to be in the news for any reason whether it is a hack or whether it's just your it systems have gone down to stop your customers from being able to do what they need to do no one wants that so a lot of companies become very risk averse and that because of that and there's no changes so no it changes and sometimes you're running systems that are decades old well out of support from their manufacturers so there's no they're no longer being maintained and packed by the software or hardware vendor there's only a defined limit that they can support it but then and if they're not being supported, then sometimes also some of these systems, the people that used to know how to run it have since long gone. And because people don't know what those systems are doing, they don't know how to manage it, they just leave them there. But then what, that leads us to some of the problems we have today. Yeah, exactly. And actually, what, what prompted me to um, talk about this topic and get you on for this episode is an article I read 
um, from a guy called Sean Con- Kuntz, <laughs> trying to f- figure out how to pronounce his name. It's spelt C-O-O-N-C-E. And actually, one of the things he said was that he never took his online security seriously because he'd never experienced an attack. And I think that's uh, some of the problems with these banks is that they leave things as they are because they don't because it's fine. They don't, they don't really want to change anything in, in case that introduces more issues. But let me share the article so people can see it. So this is on 9to5Mac. This looks like it's on Medium, actually. If for some reason, the URL is uh, different the top so basically yeah i read this article and it's about uh, a guy called sean and he had a lot of bitcoin a hundred thousand dollars worth of bitcoin and it was stolen in a um, sim port attack now i'm i'm going to give you a, a brief idea of what that is um seb please correct me someone managed to contact his phone company and get a new sim card sent to sent to them so they could put into a phone and once they have that sim card a lot of uh, companies use your mobile phone to send you a text as what they call um, second factor authentication. So they ask for your username, your password, and they'll send you a text to your phone so they can, um, you can then put that code back into the website. Well, if you can get access to someone's phone or a SIM, which you can put into your own phone, then you have access to that second factor. So what they then did is to request access to his um, email account. Google then sent a second factor code to his mobile device. He had access to that mobile phone or the, the mobile phone number and then put that code back into Google and gained access. And once you have access to the primary email account, you can gain access to lots of other services, including his Bitcoin account. Does that sound roughly right? Yeah, that sounds right. Although I would say historically, this type of attack is particularly pertinent around in the US mm. because the telecoms companies do not have the same level of control as stipulated oh, right. okay. um, by a lot of European governments. So it, this whole process of being able to simply phone up the telephone company and get them to change the details it seems a lot easier to do in the US. Really? That's I'm not crazy. saying it wouldn't happen over here. However, it's yeah, most of the cases of this type of thing seem to be coming out of the US. Okay. So actually it's it's less of an issue, but he did have some good um points in this article, which are are things he realized after the event that really should have put him on a higher alert. And I'm not going to go through it all in detail, but he gives some quite good details of the attack. He's got some um illustrations here explaining how how it it went including if i scroll down a little bit including the full timeline uh, and in, including his comments as well saying at what point he should have really realized something was going on and i thought this was quite interesting because there was a point recently where i was getting password prompts coming back up on my machine for email and a few other services all all related to google um, and we we tie google into a lot of our services because it's part of g suite so it's part of our our company uh, identity and actually think I was thinking back to this article, I was getting a couple of these coming up. So that prompted me to really a little bit more concerned about why this is happening rather than just blindly typing in my um, password again and to actually look at maybe logging out other devices, going through and resetting passwords and making sure that if someone had got access and that access has been um, sort of really pared back and then re- restricted again and made more difficult. It didn't turn out to be that. It was just a regular reset as Google does. But maybe I was a bit on a bit of higher alert after reading this article. I would say, though, for anyone who reads this type of thing, there's the concept in security of defense in depth. So the more security layers you can have, the more difficult it will be for someone to be able to compromise your account, whether that's mm-hmm. an email account, your bank account, your corporate network, etc. So having these multiple layers is definitely beneficial. So even though with this person here, 
had a simple attack enabled someone to redirect the two-factor authentication messages which were sent to his mobile phone, that's another jump that you're making an attacker have to yeah. go through. So without any two-factor authentication, this would have been a lot easier. I think generally the way that the larger companies, whether Microsoft, Apple, Facebook, Google, etc., they treat two-factor authentication fairly well. They try and make it as easy as they can. Anyone, you don't need to be technical to work with it. It should be relatively straightforward and generally for a lot of people. They can log into a website. It says, you haven't visited us from this browser you're using before. Therefore, we'll just quickly double check and we'll send them a text message to a a device that you've already used to log in within the path. And that extra step is quite beneficial. So with Google, Facebook, etc., they often provide ways and show you, look, we've detected that someone's trying to log into your account from this location. Was it you? You can quite quickly click yes or no. And then that helps them work through their systems. They see that you log in frequently from different areas. Then they'll not not prompt you in future, but they'll just update their system. They don't want to irritate you by yeah. giving you constant security prompts because that doesn't help anyone. It just makes me want to turn these security controls off but it just helps their systems and then but if you quickly say actually no that was not me then that helps you because you know someone's trying to log in without your authorization but it's also helping them they'll know right this particular location this person was trying to log in from wasn't authentic therefore they can apply additional security measures if someone's trying to use that same process again yeah i guess they might be using other uh, methods such as like looking at the ip looking at the patterns on that particular um the data coming in from that account and using that to help understand whether it's a more legitimate use the ip address something the type of browser you're using where you're coming from time of day yeah. there's all sorts of potential controls and these are not just applied by the big tech companies visa and mastercard do the same so you've got the verified by visa process for instance that, oh, that is annoying used. though i don't like <laughs> verified well, that's by a risk-based <laughs> approach so very similar in the sense that if it doesn't if i was trying to pay with something using Visa on a machine that I use day in, day out, and a location that I'm normally in, it wouldn't come up. However, if I went to a different country or if I used a different machine, then it would prompt. So it's working in exactly the same way using these sort of risk-based controls. Yeah. But agree, sometimes that can be difficult. But then that's an issue for Visa Mastercard. But it's, you know, with just those two companies, it's um, things are improving. Yeah, they are slightly. Um, just something you said about time of day as well, something that this guy, Sean, um, sh he should have twigged at the time, is that this attack was happening to him at uh, 10 at night. So that is a time where people are going to be tired. They're going to be more receptive to, like, just saying, yeah, yeah, that's fine, let things happen, or not worrying about it, or maybe even be asleep at the time to allow this to happen so actually the attack was going on when most people when he, he was like to be asleep or um, not paying attention to his um identity being sort of shifted around there is one comment that i thought was quite good which i'll scroll to at the end uh you see if i find it he says hey he says he can't stop thinking about the small easy things he could have done to protect himself along the way and i think this is what captures a lot of people i never took my online security that seriously because i'd never experienced an attack and i think that's the same for a lot of people until you have a problem when you when you would have done anything and paid anything to get it sorted if you had if you had almost thought about well what if this attack happens what if i need protection from hackers what if i need to protect against me being unavailable to give my password out to, to people like you know i i need to look after my passwords even if i'm not available to use them i think that's worth thinking about going through a disaster recovery process uh, or disaster planning process think about the worst case but no one likes to do that and that sort of stuff why do they want to talk about security but the same thing applies in the offline world, completely away from the internet. For instance, you're, you, you may have a nice house and a nice neighbourhood and thinking, you know, this is fine. You, you tend to leave your back door unlocked or your shed unlocked. 
it's only once something gets stolen, you go, maybe it's not a nice after all. People will target it as well. So there'll be people who will target particular areas because for that very reason, because it's seen as an easier route to get to something that they desire. So you get the same in the online world as well. So there are some people who will target specific companies knowing that they might have access to quite sensitive information, something mm. quite valuable, but they might be too small that they just don't have the same level of focus. So for example, a very small company who works in the defense industry might have some contracts with some large companies and has even been attacked in the past where for a major US defense contractor, attackers knew that they wouldn't be able to get into that defense company very easily. So what they did is compromise a small nursery school, very close really? to the employer, where a lot of the employees went and took their children before going into the office. And because it was local to the office, the employees were able to persuade the IT and the defense company to then say, look, you know, we want to look at the webcams in this nursery school so we can see how our children are doing during the day. So they allowed access to that. And then that was ultimately the way to then get into the organization. People are very crafty and they will do what they can to get access to a particular target, sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly through a third party like that. Yeah. And I guess if you're a, if you're a high level target, there are layers of uh, difficulty that you want to put in, in, in place to make sure it's difficult to for for, for people to get to. Most people aren't going to be a target, but sometimes they could be. They, it could be an automated target. I know, I know um, certainly in terms of websites, had um, clients where websites have been hacked. They, they think, why are we being targeted? It's not necessarily nothing, anything specific about that company. It's just an automated target. There's a vulnerability found, and then um, we have to clean up the mess by finding out, putting things back right again. You usually can't find out what the vulnerability was. By the time they the hack's been put in place, there are tons of vulnerabilities on there, so let's find out what the reason was. But it's usually no reason for it. It's just either someone just trying to hack it for fun. They may be trying to get information in there or they just want to put pages on there so that they can get Google ranking up for other websites they're trying to promote. There's uh, usually no reason for it. Often it's just to see if people can. And sometimes these can be very quick. Pure IT space, some people may have heard of companies like AWS, Amazon Web Services. Yeah. So if you can host your, uh, all sorts of services, you can host a website, host your email platform, but you can have that, you have something called access keys. But these access keys have been, you know, you might, your code repository where you put your software code might be GitHub. So people have AWS access keys stored in GitHub. Now, typically your GitHub file will be set private. means no one yeah. else can read it. Sometimes people accidentally, they're doing something in a rush, potentially at the end of the day, or, you know, because they're getting shouted at by a manager, and they'll accidentally make that particular code public. Mm -hmm. And I've seen cases where, with literally within <clears> seconds, <throat> someone's been able to, oh, it's gone public, scan it, find out these access credentials, then be able to log into the AWS account, and then they'll be spinning up a vast range of services within Amazon Web Services, potentially running crypto mining, things like that. So that's uh, mining for cryptocurrency. So if you want to create a large amount of Bitcoin quite easily, for example, or another cryptocurrency, then this is often a common method and people, and you wow. can do it so quickly. Once you've got access to their AWS account, obviously not you paying the bill anymore, it's that company that you've been able to compromise their AWS environment. It's so quick to do, and this is literally within seconds that you can spin up hundreds of machines immediately after you've been able to get their access keys from, from GitHub. And that's reasonably common, unfortunately. Yeah, it's the same same I've seen with hacks on websites. The moment usually there's a vulnerability and it's found, 
then then you'll get other things piling on top of that and it happens very quickly yeah and it's in their interest to do it quickly a because they might be detected by the owner of the account but also amazon might detect the fraudulent use of the account and shut it down so they need to make hay while that sun is shining just moving back there there was another article that you mentioned from a guy called matt honan that's right put put up on screen uh this happened uh, a couple of years ago was it 2012 Uh, yeah Yeah. but this is very similar to the sean um article i mentioned and this uh, is titled how apple and amazon security flaws led to my epic hacking. I think this is a a sadder story in many ways because it led to loss of lots of personal items. So it wasn't just money, which the other guy could, could make back, or despite it being a lot of money, he could make it back again. Uh, with Matt, he lost a lot of personal photos and and things dear to him, which you can't get back. So it's it's a very much a story of uh, the same the same sort of. Actually, I'm, why don't you tell us a little bit more about this story? Sure. So yeah, it, this is essentially how this Matt Honan. He was originally targeted purely because people wanted to get access to his Twitter handle, which is right. at Mat, and that's it. People thought it's nice and short and sweet. That was the original target or the reason for why he was compromised. But they were able to get access into his Gmail account, I believe, they were able to get the last four digits of his credit card. With that, they were then able to get access to his Amazon account, reset his Amazon account. And the reason after implicating this, because he was, they also got access to his iCloud account, which then they wiped all his devices. I know. And he didn't, I think he had had backups, but they were a year ago or something. And within oh. that year, he'd had a new baby daughter and all That's his right, photos yeah. for that year were lost. Ben said it was a very personal thing that he lost and he had no way of getting them back. And this is all because people wanted access to his short Twitter handle. This is, wasn't the fault of uh, any of companies involved, really, certainly Apple or Amazon. It, it was just a case of him not putting those extra layers in place. You could blame, look, Apple, both Apple and Amazon did have flaws that made this easier to exploit and they both updated their processes afterwards yeah so they were partly culpable in this but as is matt honan but he quite freely admits it in this article so he's a he's a journalist for wired so it's he had quite a large online persona and obviously had a large number of followers on his twitter account and because of that yeah he became the target and i guess yes he could have done more but so could apple and, and amazon they and they have done now and and, and let's be, be clear this this attack wasn't just a purely digital attack this required someone contacting um amazon and apple directly on i that's think right. it was on the phone you know this isn't just a script that's running in the background that takes ownership and, and control this is someone on the telephone orchestrating this multiple attack vectors in the, the terminology we use in the security industry so it was very much a well rehearsed as well so if you read the article people had obviously done tests of a little bit they knew exactly what amazon's processes were they knew what apple's processes were and they knew what they needed to get to to help exploit it so when they were able to start the initial compromise the whole from start to finish was very very quick because they they rehearsed it all the way through well i'm, I'm going to make sure those two articles are linked in there i think it's worth the read and not to scare people it's just worth reading to make sure that if it just prompts you to check your own security make sure that you have done as much as you can that isn't going to be awkward for you that's something where it's going to give you a higher level of security but um but something that you can manage on a day-to-day basis it's definitely worth looking at and saying that something new that apple are bringing out in their new operating system in the autumn is um, sign in with Apple. And this is a this is very similar to uh, 
something that Google, Facebook, and Twitter, although you don't see the Twitter one so much, have already, which are buttons which people can use instead of uh, creating a, a new account with an email with a username and password. You can actually just have a Google button or Facebook button on there where you can click on those and use your Google or Facebook credentials to log in. And then those details are passed back to the app or, or system that you're using. And the benefit with those is that you, you can maybe have a stronger Google account. You can use uh, your second factor authentication. And we'll talk a little bit about different ways of doing that later in the podcast. So you could use your Google account to authenticate for that particular app. And it means you've got one less thing to worry about. You just think about using one one login, which I think is, it seems on, uh, it seems more straightforward. Yep. And just to explain the terminology that Ben and I have been mentioning. So two-factor, multi-factor, second-factor, different factors typically are something you know. So that would be your username <laughs> password. You know it in your head. Another fact would be something you have. Now, this is where whether you've got a particular hardware device, your telephone is the second factor. Now, more and more commonly, it's something you are, which is biometrics. Mm. So whether that's using face ID, touch ID, etc., that's the biometric scan. So those are the three different types of factors. And the more factors you can layer together, then the stronger your overall security posture is. Right. And I guess there may be other factors which we don't interact with, but they are to do with maybe time of day, and location and other things that can be taken into account, which aren't, aren't necessarily proof, but they can be used if you're operating outside of that, they can be used to help determine if it's not you. Correct. And in large corporate networks, you might have a corporate laptop that's got a certificate installed on it. So that's something as the very, but that's the what you have back again. So yep. whether it is a, your telephone or your laptop, but it's something that authenticates you that helps companies and individuals help to secure their overall security posture, help to improve overall security posture. Something I use uh, to log into my Mac is uh, my Apple Watch. Now, this is actually a, an old one. This is an original one. I thought you were going to um, say your wedding ring. But... <laughs> yeah, I use my wedding band. So the Apple Watch is, I mean, great for many, many, many things. But but one of the primary uses I have it for is it enables me to have a longer password on my Mac that is something I can remember because uh, I do still have to type it in from time to time. But the fact that I can just walk up to my Mac, wiggle the mouse, and it, it logs in by connecting to my Apple Watch is is really beneficial to, for me. Obviously, the way you connect this is you have to log into this watch first. And if, if I take it off, it breaks connection. And it means that someone, if they just sort of steal this off my wrist and run away with it, it's going to be difficult for them to then try and unlock my Mac with it. Still not impossible. I'm sure there are ways, still difficult. But it allows you to have that convenience for secu with security. There's a guy called Rene Ritchie, who I listen to a lot of podcasts. And he, he often says that security is really that balance between making easy and com complex, because you can have a very long password that's going to take you ages to type, which is going to be more secure, or you can have a shorter one, which is more convenient, or maybe something like this, a token, which allows you to be represented. Anyway, we're going down a little bit of a tangent there, but thank you for, for, for clarifying some of those terms. Seth. Let me share my screen so people can see more about signing with Apple. And, and the reason I like it, I use a lot of Apple devices. I've got an Apple address or an Apple login. So, so for me, I'm quite happy um, trusting of Apple in terms of how they manage my data. So I believe that they won't sell it, that they won't use it in the wrong way and they'll, that they'll store it securely. So actually, if I have an Apple sign-in button on an app, then I'm, I'm likely to use that because it's nice and easy that I'll be able to hit it, click on it, and it's going to send just the details that are needed. So diving into um, signing with with Apple, one of the interesting features that they mentioned in the keynote is the ability to share your email address with the app that you're signing up for. Now, that's really useful for the app maker. That's great if, to have their email address. But one of the more unique areas of this or elements of this 
is that you can actually provide them with an email, but it's not your email. It's a special random email that Apple will generate on your behalf. They'll supply that to the app maker. And when the app maker sends an email to that random email, that will then forward on to you. So you've got this line of defense in between, which again is quite good. That helps protect you because if that app maker's database is stolen and published on the internet, then the email that they're using is an Apple email and not your email. So that might help uh, make it a bit more difficult for people to find out your details. But also it means that if, you, if you're not interested in signing up for their emails and they don't respond to their unsubscribe requests, you can actually cancel them from, from Apple and, and bin that off. And I thought that's quite an interesting um, idea. I know you've been doing something like that with Gmail, Seb. Yeah, so that, that exists. And it's an add-on to your point about it. So it helps from a privacy angle because the target website that you're trying to log in with doesn't get your actual email unless you authorize it. But it also helps with something called credential stuffing. So that's a security term. And historically, people in security haven't necessarily made things easy. People just resort to using the same username and password across multiple different websites. So when one of these websites might get breached, they haven't protected their data very well and it's quite easy to obtain the raw username and passwords mm. that people use to log in. The credential stuffing is literally taking these credentials and then trying them on a whole wide array of other sites. And then, oh, actually, look, we've used the same username and password combination to now go in and access 10 or 15 other sites. So they can potentially get access to a lot more information, which they tend to use to either sell to other people, to blackmail you, if, and if it's sensitive, ultimately, it's a position that you don't really want to be in. So the more you can leverage technology companies' security capabilities so whether it's apple facebook or google typically i'd recommend it because overall they do quite a good job you are putting some trust in them but ultimately it's better to trust one of those larger players than the security of a random website that you use to order a new toy for your child or something like that there's so many websites and a lot of people they don't a lot of the come on these smaller sites they might not have invested the time plenty money to help secure the website all the data you're sending them your payment card data will typically be handled differently there's some called the payment card industry data security standard and that is basically makes it there are quite that's quite well regulated in order to make sure that people's credit card data or debit card data protected but outside that it's a bit of a wild west and it yeah. completely depends on the website on how they actually manage your data so honestly although you are giving a bit of trust to these large companies like apple google and facebook overall the security is a lot better and it will hopefully make your lives a lot easier to help you improve your security so, certainly if you're concerned about other actors getting hold of your details then then signing up with those whether you trust what they're doing with the details is, is a, another matter what google and facebook are doing with them or, or even apple but yes it is significantly better because they will have better security processes in place and they'll be more at risk if they if they lose your data well, that's great i'm just going to do a sponsor read now if that's okay and we're going to talk about inventive people inventive people is a collective of creative technical and marketing folk that i've worked with over the last nine years and it can be a pain to find the right person for a small project from deciding what you need to getting a cost and dealing with all the uncertainties of working with someone new. So to overcome this, we put together 60 tasks or common marketing promotional elements. So you know the cost, how long it will take, what it is and what isn't included all before you agree to anything. So I'm just going to give you a quick demo. So we've got inventive people open here. Let's say you wanted some proofreading done. So you've got an important document that's going out, maybe a pitch even. So you go into content writing, you find Louise here, um, my wife, as it happens, and it's clearly labeled with proofreader word PDF or PowerPoint file. So we can click into that. It says what is included and what isn't included. 
So in this case, Louise isn't going to go and fact find or research. She's not going to be rewriting or creating new new copy from what you've already got. This is about proofreading. It's about taking something that is at its final stage and making sure it's spelt correctly. The grammar is right and the punctuation is right. And, and, and it basically it's a consistent document. And it's actually quite reasonable at £35 for 10 pages. You can select a different amount of pages. Now, let's say we've got a document which is up to 10 pages. I can add that to our cart. That looks good. We go through to checkout and I must remember to use the code inventive podcast to get my 20% discount. So let's put that in. Apply that and we've got our discount. And that's it. You buy the item and you're done. You'll be contacted by Louise and you can continue as normal. It's nice and straightforward. So if you need that blog article written, what some website updates, new star photos or a case study video, check out inventivepeople.co.uk. And remember to make sure as a listener to this podcast that you use the code inventivepodcast for 20% off your first order. Okay, moving on. Seb, are you able to offer some other tips for uh, individuals or small businesses in terms of protecting their data online? Certainly. So there's the key bits is I would typically passwords can be quite difficult. Historically, people in the security industry have not been very user friendly. We've told <laughs> you, look, when you, you must log in, but you need a minimum of eight characters, one uppercase, one lowercase and a special character, and it's, it makes it really complicated. Oh, and to make it matters worse, you've got to change that every 30 days, just because we like being mean. It, it's not very it's not very nice, really. It was perceived to be good from a security perspective because you come up with a load of random characters. It makes it more difficult. Ultimately, it didn't really work. You know, one of the most common passwords for a long time, which met most of the complexity requirements in corporate environments, which is one uppercase, one lowercase, and one number mm. was password one with a capital P. Yeah. Meets all the complexity requirements. However, it's not a very good password because it's very common and it's very easy for companies. It's very easy for people who want to attack a particular target, whether that's an individual or a company, to then start off with the most commonly used passwords. Mm. And also some people, because they choose, they're told to change the password every 30 days, 60 days, whatever it is. No, next time they need to answer, all right, password two. Yeah, you just keep adding a number or letter exactly. on top. Exactly. Yeah. And then, but you know, people would then potentially use their favorite football team, etc. the year they were born. But generally, there's a lot of common factors and it makes it reasonably easy. So what a large number of people are choosing to do today is recommend a password phrase. So a collection of, say, four or five words. It doesn't have to be a sentence. So you don't need any joining words like and, etc. Just four or five phrases, four or five words that make up a phrase that they don't actually have to mean anything to you as long as you understand it then that together will be about say 20 characters 25 characters generally if the longer the password is the stronger it is mm. so if you want to add in any additional complexity like making one of those words either you know, start with a capital or end with then that's definitely possible but ultimately even if it was all lowercase it would still be reasonably strong password if you had four or five quite strong passwords mm -hmm. there's something that you can put up in a link later on but it's a XKCD uh, who do it's a comic strip basically oh, I find it, yeah. again it's just a series of words that don't particularly mean anything but it's something that you will probably likely remember and actually that's a stronger password than password one password two I, I found that example and yeah I'm showing on screen now but uh, they come up with the, the four random words 
correct horse battery staple. Uh, <laughs> I think it's the password that they came up with. But yeah, it sounds like a really good idea. So I'll make sure that link is in the show notes. But also Utilize password managers are quite good because they can generate a, a truly random password that you don't need to remember. Therefore, the master password is important because if they then get if anyone gets access to your master password, they then have access to all those passwords. So you need to protect that. But whether that's protected, if you're using Apple Keychain, for example, then that's protected using your Apple ID. So as long as mm. that's protected, then everything that's stored in your Apple Keychain is also protected. The same works with Google Chrome, for instance. So if you're an Android user or if you've got a Chromebook, then all your passwords that you store are protected by your Google account credentials. So as long as that's protected, then you're protecting a much larger list of passwords. These password generators are very good. So the current Apple standard is, I believe, three groups of six letters or yeah, that's right, you know, letter yeah. number combinations mm-hmm. with uh, two dashes to separate the three groups. And so that's a total of 20 characters, completely randomized. No one's going to guess it. And you can just store that in your Apple keychain for one particular website. Have another website, completely separate thing. And it just makes it easy. Going back to the comment earlier about how if one of these websites didn't store their information about you, securely then even if someone did get access to it okay they can now log in as you to this one specific account but they can't reuse that for any other website yeah it's the reusing passwords that's a a real issue it's a good bit of software actually the keychain it sits in the background you don't really notice it there does generate when you're signing up for new services it generates the the passwords as you described they've also also now changed safari so that once a password is in stored in there with the username, if you select that, so it'll usually come up with the, the default one that you use. If you just select that, it'll automatically log in. So it will apply those details. And if it can, it'll automatically log in. So you can actually log in with, with one click normally. It's very swift. So long as you trust that access to your computer, because obviously if you can get access to someone's computer, then you've got to have a really strong password to be able to get in there because once they've got access, then they've got potentially got access to your passwords as well, or at least log in to some of these services. Exactly. And if you're a heavy user of Apple devices and you, you buy into their whole iCloud ecosystem, then it can Your sync team. everything across iCloud. Yes, and myself as well. The, uh, but it can sync everything across all your app devices. So I don't need to worry about having different password lists on my laptop, on my desktop, on my phone, my tablet. It all syncs together. And that's something you feel comfortable with as a security consultant yes definitely there's a large number of people in the security industry who decide to say they like the flexibility of android to be honest i would say there's a large number of people in the security industry who actually do use apple products Mm. partly because they just want something that works and they do also trust it so apple have gone on record to say you know security and privacy are very key to them they don't plan on selling anyone's data etc it's not in their business model they don't they don't make money off it they don't need to make money off it because then the money they make is off the devices and services that they sell anyway so there's no business driver for them so it's actually been potentially more of a marketing maneuver for them to say look because we're keen on privacy we, we've got no reason to sell your data therefore if you buy into the apple ecosystem then you know, we will protect you and your identity and everything we hold it yeah. so that's been quite good for them as a security consultant i definitely believe that apple do a very good job at protecting their environment. I think they're also a big target. So because they're such a big company, they're under so much scrutiny for everything they do. I feel that it's very difficult for them to wiggle around and not do things in the right way. And then coming on the record and saying, we will not do these. Um, for example, with the, the single sign on button saying that they will not sell your personal details. It's not in their interest to do so. I think those all rack up to make it 
it's not that other companies won't be able to do that. It's just that it was very difficult for them to get away with any bad practices because that's in, in the limelight so much. Correct. However, you've got some companies who are very large who do have very bad security practices sometimes in certain areas. So Facebook, for example, they have been not just selling data, the whole Cambridge Analytica element. Part of what Facebook does is very good. The sign-on with Facebook, I think there's a lot of security measures that have been put in place to try and make that whole process secure. Other parts of Facebook as in Instagram, for example, were for quite a long period of time not encrypting any username and password, so people found them on the database. Within. So certain practices just are good at Facebook, other practices not. So was I think, and they seem to be getting away with it. You know, some people have been deleting their Facebook accounts, but overall, I think Facebook has still got a large number of active accounts, and I think some of the bad practices are not really changing their, their business model. Mm. So was Apple because of what they partly because they market themselves as having good privacy policy computer policy i think they are more on the hook if there was was to be an issue so then if, you know, they're not alone they have had security flaws but you know you still get there some of the software has vulnerabilities vulnerabilities which get exploited but then as soon as apple discover that they will fix it that because it's because they have used it as a marketing thing in the past so they you know, people do expect a higher standard and apple will lose a lot of their loyal customer base if they don't start to you know if they lose that it hits them in the wallet basically yeah they exactly don't right you're sort of top tips are make sure your password is long but it doesn't need to be complicated it can just be some simple words strung together Correct. and to use a password manager now do you recommend any password managers one password last pass both quite good they're both quite big they're both multi-platform windows linux mac android yeah yeah they both work on all those platforms and that certainly helps you know and it's they're both pretty straightforward think both last pass and um, one password have free versions as well so you can try them Yes, I know, I know LastPass do. We we use LastPass as a company. It was partially recommended by um, our editor's partner who works in uh, he works um, in security and he likes tinkering that sort of stuff. So he recommended LastPass. But I think one password is just as good. Lots of people recommend that. And we use that from a business point of view. So we store a lot of client passwords where we need to access their services on their behalf. Obviously, we've, we've collected them with their permission. They know it's being stored in there. One of the things we do is try not to store anything in there that doesn't need to be stored. You know, if we can get it or we can reset it and we won't put it in there. But personally, I'll use the keychain. Apple's keychain works really, really well. In fact, should we, should we go through a couple of the tools? Um, there's, there's lots of different tools that can be used in terms of protecting your privacy or security online. So what's the first one? So actually LastPass, I'll, I'll bring that up. So this is LastPass. Um, it's quite straightforward. Works, works nicely, as I said. Um, it actually does fill out passwords for you online if you want to use it like that. We also have this added um, second factor authentication through LastPass, which is an app on your phone, got it on my iPhone, where... If a service needs this second factor or two factor authentication, you can use this app to generate that code. And it's usually, yeah, this little six digit code that will associate with your account. So when they ask for that, I can go to the app and it's quite clever. When you come up with LastPass and it needs that authentication code, uh, push notification to my phone, I could hit it, click verify, and then it tells the app immediately be verified. It works really well. You can also use Google Authenticator. I believe they have basically the same, same sort of system. As with Microsoft. So there's right. one of the benefits of the Microsoft Authenticator versus Google one is that you can back up all your codes to your Microsoft account. So ah, yes. A lot of people have 
Google Authenticate, put it on the account, but then if they lose their phone and they, you know, it's it's a difficult process, more difficult than it should be. It's a pain. To change with Google Authenticate. I think Google are working on improving that, but currently the Microsoft Authenticator works quite well. Yeah, so I guess it depends what ecosystem you're in. I know LastPass allows it to back up to LastPass as well, so they've got a similar feature. I think I just wanted something independent, really, but that works quite nicely. There's something else I was going to say, but I can't remember what it was. It's not coming to me, so we'll just... Just scrub that. I would say um, another key thing that I do make, if there's anything, whether it's sentimental value, like we mentioned before, the passwords, of, sorry, the, the pictures of someone's children, like Matt Honan when he lost them, is very simple. He did have backups, but they were all attached to other Mac devices. So when they would right. compromise his iCloud account, oh, they yeah. wiped all his Mac devices. So keep do keep a backup, but keep anything that's really sensitive, whether it's from a your company's perspective or individually, keep backup. Ideally, in a completely separate um, environment that's not, not connected to uh, the internet, because and maybe even away from your main home. And that's mm. just a, a general area. If there's, if there's things, if you've got lots of backups, but it's all in your main house, and your house is on burgled or pretty worse, if there's a fire, you will lose everything. And that's, you know, if there's something that's quite significant and terrible as that anyway, the last thing you want is then to be when you're trying to build everything back up, then have more problems because you lost all your backups as well. Yes. So having the backups there in the first place is good, but also test them because well, some companies yes. are quite bad and they will back up potentially for years and years ago. So then they'll realize that the worst possible moment when they're trying to restore from a backup that actually the process wasn't working and they weren't actually backing up anything at all because they weren't tested. Well, I'll just, I'll come back to that actually uh, briefly, but um, the backup system we use, and I know we were talking about it earlier, is Backblaze. So this is something we use. I've, I've got it uh, running Set, set to run at six o'clock every evening and it will basically stream all of the data that's changed during the day up. I used to actually have it streaming live so when it, any data was changing it would go up but I do so many video conference calls it was just uh, uh, drowning my bandwidth it wasn't very good but th yeah this works really well it's kind of my last line of defense really having that um, I've also got time machine running uh, time machine backup running on my Mac so that's running every I think it's every hour maybe every half hour uh, it should be picking up just the the changes from that and that that's a good first dip if there's any any, any issues every time i change operating system i'll do a, um, a snapshot basically of the the system and and archive that so that might be a year out of date but again that's that i guess is my last line of defense it's there in case so that can be quite useful so yeah backblaze okay. is a really good system it's really cost effective i mean you're looking at what less than 60 pounds a year protect something i think there's a discount if you buy for two years which is what i do it's really uh, worth doing and there's no limit as well that 60 pounds a year is for each device but there is no limit on what you back up so you put it's good to put everything underneath that as well found out about backblaze because of one of their blog posts they are quite transparent about how their backup operation works the sort of testing they will do on all the hard drives that have to go in and it's they do a lot of testing performance testing um, also making sure that the failure testing obviously if you want to run a backup operation like that if you have hard drives that fail a lot of the time so they do a lot of testing Indeed. and they're very transparent about the processes so it was quite interesting to see and it's just from an individual perspective to know that you're putting your money into a company that are actually going to take care of your critical information yeah they do yeah i can highly recommend them something else that might be useful for people is um having a vpn because it protects your security in a different way so maybe 
if you are at a coffee shop and the you don't you aren't able to tether to your your mobile phone for example and you you need to use their wi-fi but their wi-fi isn't security protected which is is unlikely nowadays but it can happen then if you have a vpn what that can do is it's a way of encrypting or protecting all of your traffic traffic and then running it through a uh, different pipe so to speak a different virtual pipe so that people who are looking at that Wi-Fi can't actually see the traffic is in its own protected tunnel. Is that about right? That's about right. So VPN, virtual private network, it is a cryptid link, so you cannot see. On the case of public Wi-Fi, it's less of an issue nowadays because so many sites use HTTPS. Mm. So SSL slash TLS, you may have heard those terms before. So, but because your traffic between your laptop, say, and the website is now encrypted, that means if someone else was connected to the same public Wi-Fi, they can't see that traffic, whereas previously they could. So there's less of a requirement nowadays for public Wi-Fi, but it's still good practice if you can make sure that all your traffic is encrypted using a VPN. And I know some people use VPNs, for example, when they're traveling, for instance, because certain services like iPlayer can only be viewed in the UK. So people will go, when they go abroad, they'll use a VPN which comes back to the UK and then you can watch iPlayer while you're still on holiday. So a lot of people use it for that type of thing. Or to use if you're sat in the UK and you want to use services that are only available in the US, like Hulu, then you, know, you can use that same functionality. Or if you just don't trust the network you're on, maybe everything is secure, you, they're using HTTPS, you just don't trust it then you can use a VPN to make sure that you're protected. You do have to trust the VPN, though. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, they can potentially look at the, see all the traffic, and it, depending on how it's encrypted, they, they can maybe infer information yeah. as well. Very important that you know who the VPN provider is and what they're going to be doing with your data. Going back to Facebook's bad practices, um, they actually acquired a VPN company did, yes. and then they were trying to get children to use this software by saying look it's free and you know, we'll be able to give you access to additional services but all the time they were using because the vpn all the traffic was then routing through facebook's network and facebook are then doing more monitoring of what's going on. yeah in general you can have a facebook account certainly i've still got one facebook have quite a few unethical practices that I think they need to resolve. They do. I'm not going to go into it now. It gets me angry. A VPN that I use, I've got it on screen, it's called TunnelBear, but they do have a free account where you can use 500 meg of data a month. So if you just need it temporarily, it can be quite useful just to have on your laptop if you're taking it out. Just Or, or sometimes if you need to test something, it can be really good. If you want to test how um, your website is being accessed from a different country, you can use TunnelBear hop into the US or um, somewhere over in Europe, and you can then view your website and you'll see it from that point of view. So it's really good for testing uh, language variations, automatic language variations. So that's free for 500 500 meg, really simple to use. There are obviously more advanced ones, but um, I'm not gonna go into those. Something finally I want to touch on, I don't know how you feel about these, Seb, is um, ad blockers. So this is one from a guy called Dean Murphy, who actually I interviewed, oh, I don't know when it was, last year at some point, Um, great guy. He's made this app crystal so if you want to hear more about how he made that and how it came to be i will make sure the link is in the show notes but you can find that on our blog but essentially what these do from uh, an apple point of view and this one works on google play as well is that they will block um, various things like ads so if they detect any ads or tracking javascript they will block those so they'll stop those 
like a firewall really they'll stop those from being accessed and they can block lots of basically any script or any domain they can they can block and stop that from being loaded uh, not only in this case it can save you bandwidth so uh, crystal promises to save you around 50 percent of your bandwidth by blocking a lot of these but it can save your privacy as well while you're browsing around that a lot of websites may be unaware of the tracking that they have in place through various javascript and ad servers and what data is being collected. So you may want to use something like this if you feel that um, that data is being leached out into places that you don't know about. How do you feel about that? I'm in two minds with ad blockers. I fully understand why people will want to install them. Certain you go to browse certain sites, you know, you get half the page or more of ads. They're very intrusive. They'll follow your curves around. They'll just pop up a video when you least want it. They can be very irritating from a, just a user experience perspective. But they also have some security disadvantages because companies will, they'll connect to advertising networks that don't always have many policies really to control the content mm -hmm. so sometimes you can be browsing a perfectly uh, a legitimate site so a, a cnn for example a few years ago they were found to be delivering malicious code which is delivered through advertising networks oh really it's not their code oh, they no. weren't party to it however some of the companies that they allowed to advertise either directly or indirectly had loose policies which therefore allowed malicious code to infect the users of, of a cnn website so that's obviously yeah, I mean, two months, but also some people use them and it, content producers, they are putting content out there and sometimes they should deserve to get something Absolutely. back. However, I would rather currently because use an ad blocker and then for the sites that I do like the content for, so whether that's Wired or Ars Technica, for example, I do like their content, so I'd happily pay for that. And Ars Technica are good. If you pay already, then that's just, they'll get rid of all the ads yeah. by default. But, but actually, it's, it's not... Newspapers won't. You know, if I advertise, well, I do. I subscribe to Financial Times as well, mm -hmm. but they'll take my subscription as well as serve me adverts still. And it's actually not, I don't have a problem with adverts at all, being in a marketing and advertising. I think it's it's fine. Adver adverts can be great and they can actually be really useful in pointing you to things that you, you you might need or that would be useful in your life or business. It's the additional weight that comes with it from a, a browsing point of view. It's just terrible what uh, the abuse that a lot of these tracking King JavaScript will use and, and use your bandwidth in a bad way. And then then potentially the privacy angle as well, how, they, how they're going to use that. Yeah, it, I, I guess it's up to you. You, you. Use them if you feel that you want to protect it. Certainly um, it, it can be worthwhile and it can speed up your internet connection as well. Yep, and there have been cases where some um, but the problem, like with the, you're putting your faith in the VPN providers, you're also putting your faith in the person who created the ad blocking software. Because there have been cases where you know, ad blocking software has become particularly popular and then they will take money from companies to essentially whitelist them. We will allow you to show ads to our users who run our ad blocking software. Yeah, exactly. Well, we better finish it there. We're running long, so I'm going to whip through a few other things. I just want to share a recent interview that went out from a lovely woman called Shana Rattler. She is a leading expert in corporate sponsorship and influencer marketing. She really knows her stuff. Uh, if you're interested, basically what she's talking about is if you have any sort of audience, there are companies who will want access to that audience, but there are ways of managing that so you can benefit and the audience benefit. And obviously the corporation or company who are sponsoring you or providing money um, will benefit too. I highly suggest you have a listen to it. It's really good. There's lots of useful advice. I had a great time talking. 
speaking to Shana. Also, do check out our events page. I'll show it now, but actually I don't know exactly when this is going to go out. So some of these may have gone by, but mm -hmm. uh, do have a look at our website, ratherinventive.com and uh, click on events and you can see everything that's coming up. All of our events, talks, workshops, most of them free, to be honest. Go through and have a look and see what takes your fancy. And then finally, to round off, but uh, Seb, where can we find you online? On Twitter, uh, at Seb Kinnaird. Also, just Google me and my LinkedIn will probably come up. I'm more than happy to speak to anyone. If you've got any queries around security, I can I know from experience and working with some people in the security industry, they can, they can make things sound overly complicated. And so if you're not sure about anything, I'll be happy to help. Lovely. Thank you very much. And I'm at Ben Kinnaird on Twitter, or you can contact the show, hello at ratherinventive.com if you still use email. Sponsor for this episode is Inventive People. Um, make sure you use the code when you go to inventivepeople.co.uk. Inventive People is the code uh, for 20% off. You can find the show notes for this episode on our website, ratherinventive.com slash podcast and if you want to support this podcast you can do so just by letting other people know uh, either in person or you can rate us on itunes or even signing up to our inventive marketing club now this is where we meet each other online to discuss a topic such as how to get five star reviews youtube stats linkedin and other helpful stuff and that's for about uh, just under 25 pounds a month uh, i'll make sure the link is in the show notes that's it thank you very much for your time seb really good talking to you and I i'll catch thank up you. with you personally soon i'm sure and to everyone else thanks for listening Pick it, pick it, pick it, pick it.